Hope you've had a blessed time so far this morning with us in your Sunday school classes and you've been encouraged by the Word. That's what we're going to do now, spend time in the Word. We've spent time singing God's praise and giving out of our, what the Lord has given to us and praying and fellowshipping. And now we'll spend time in the Word and applying the Word. Before we do that, if you have a little one up through grade four, you'd like for them to be in children's church, they can be dismissed right now to the foyer. Thank you, teachers, for serving in those areas. For the rest of you, turn in your copy of God's Word to 1 Corinthians 15. And there's a significant difference between this Sunday and last Sunday, and of course this Sunday is the fact that we have power. It's awfully nice to do that. We're not uh, used to sitting in a hot church. Of course, in Lynchburg, we're doing our best to combat global warming. And so uh, tonight it'll be 39. We're just doing our part in the world to make sure, you know, we, uh, we combat it. All right, for you, First uh, Corinthians chapter 15. Last time we finished up in uh, verse 41. Look at verse 41. I want to read it because I want to show you a few things there. Uh, that I came on in my reading this week that I thought would, were appropriate. Verse 41 says this, as it speaks of the resurrected body and compares it to what the Lord's created in, in the heavens, it says, verse 41, there is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for stars differ from star and glory. And I thought it was a, a, in, interesting that I came upon these. I don't know why that shifted. Is there any way you can, Jason, can you, you change that? For some reason, that uh, presentation is cutting off the top. But what we, right here we have our sun compared to the planets in our solar system, just to give you an idea of uh, just uh, how we're set up there. And then we have, these are stars that we can see at night in our location in the galaxy. As we think about stars comparing with stars in glory, this is a star that's about 3,900 light years from Earth. It was once considered the largest known star compared to our sun. This is our galaxy compared to other known galaxies. These are some of the many galaxies visible from the Hubble Space Telescope. Look at the shapes, stars that are visible. These are the same galaxies as visible from Earth. In 2014, a probe was placed on a near-Earth orbit comet. This is the comet superimposed on the city of L.A. That should, by, by itself, that should allow us to set up and take notice since Revelation clearly states that there'll be two different comets that will impact the Earth during that time. So as we understand how the Lord has made those things, the, 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 the scripture says the heavens declare the glory of God and the earth declares his handiwork. And I think that if there's anything that declares the glory of God in its size and scope and the sheer volume of things that we can't even see, let alone the things we can take a brief look at, I think it declares certainly that the Lord is capable, worthy of our praise, certainly capable of creating and making and sustaining anything he wishes. And so as we look at this passage of scripture, of course, Paul is addressing those who deny the resurrection and in the section that we're in right now, we're picking up really, we got through verse 41 last time, which takes us about a third of the way, almost half the way through this section, resurrection, transformation of our fleshly bodies. Look at verse 35. We'll read through 35 through 49, if you would. Verse 35, look in your copy of God's word, but someone will say, how are the dead raised and with what kind of body do they come? Verse 36, you fool, that which you sow does not come to life unless it dies. Verse 37, in that which you sow, you do not sow the body which is to be, but a bare grain perhaps of wheat or of something else. Verse 38, but God gives it a body just as he wished, and to each of the seeds a body of its own. Verse 39, all flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one flesh of man, another flesh of beasts, and another flesh of birds, and another of fish. Verse 40, there are also heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is one, and the glory of the earthly is another. Verse 41, there is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, another glory of the stars, for stars differ from star in glory. Verse 42, so also is the resurrection of the dead. All those comparisons to point back to the mechanics and the form of the resurrection. It's sown a perishable body, it's raised an imperishable body. Verse 43, it's sown in dishonor, it's raised in glory, it's sown in weakness, it's raised in power. Verse 44, it's sown a natural body, it's raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Verse 45, so also it is written. The first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. 
Verse 46, however, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, then the spiritual. Verse 47, the first man is from the earth, earthly. Second man is from heaven. As is the earthly, so also are those who are earthly. As is the heavenly, so also are those who are heavenly. Verse 49, just as we have borne the image of the earthly, we, also, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly. Let's stop right there. And in our context, in Paul's comments, really they're towards those who deny the bodily resurrection. But what Paul has done here in this section for, from verses 35 through 49 is really come back to the mechanics of the resurrection. Okay, so the resurrection is imperative. It's important for the forgiveness of sin and that our life really matters on earth. It's important that Christ raised because if he raised, so will those, all, all those who come after him. He's the first fruits. It's important because, because Christ is raised, all enemies of the Lord and all dominion, power, and authority are all going to be put under his feet and turned over to the Lord. So all these things are important. They're important for future events. And now he just comes back to, okay, he's got some people say, okay, well, you know, um, how are the dead raised and what kind of body do they come in this very mocking manner? And so, although we found some wonderful encouragement, I think, in Paul's teaching and in the surety of what lies ahead, there are many who don't find this teaching that encouraging, and Paul is dealing with them here. And they say to Paul in verse 35, how are the dead raised, and with what kind of body are they going to come? And these are the mockers. How are the dead raised is really mockingly asked about, is asking about the mechanics of the process. So how are they going to be put back together? So how does that work? How does somebody who's died get put back together? How does it happen? Dead people coming out of the ground or from the sea or from disintegration or whatever. How can something dead come to life again? And then the second mocking question is, look at verse 35, and with what kind of body do they come? And that's the question of form. So what are they going to look like when they come out? Um, how could something decompose and then look good? This has got to be some kind of joke. And so really, he's just getting back to the actual physical properties of the resurrection. And so the Holy Spirit is going to carry Paul along, and he's going to answer the questions of mechanics and form, but he first he answers the mockers, and what does he say in verse 36? What's the first thing he says to them? He calls them a fool. When you raise up your knowledge against what the Bible clearly teaches, this is Paul's response. Okay? Not all questions are created equal. Not all comments are created equal. Some comments that, that just throw themselves up against the knowledge of the Lord, Paul just responds and says, you're just a fool. Not only is what you're saying stupid, you're stupid. That's Paul's response. And so he says that, and Paul says, you guys have no understanding. And then he makes it really clear that what he's been saying about the resurrection has its parallels in something that many of them do for a living every day. And they understand this, so he's going to draw that parallel right now. He says this, How are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You fool, verse 36. Look at the end of verse 36. That's which you sow does not come to life unless it dies. They sowed seed, uh, which was destroyed, at least in the form in which it was sown, and that act of sowing or that act of burial makes it the perfect opportunity for Paul to say, okay, here's the illustration. Um, this is so similar to death that Paul's going to speak of the grain as dying. And this is a very consistent theme in the New Testament of dying. See, the part, uh, it's part of salvation. We die with Christ spiritually, and we're raised with Christ in the new man. It's part of service. We give up our life to find it, lose our life to keep it. And as Paul demonstrates here, it's part of the process of physical bodily resurrection, a death and a resurrection. Now look at the last part of verse 36. That's what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. Verse 37, and that which you sow, you do not sow the body which is to be, but a bare grain, perhaps of wheat or of something else. So as we think about the mechanics of the resurrection, we understand that the miracle of planting and harvest illustrates it. Paul just uses that. That's his first stop. If you need to know how this works, if you want to know how the mechanics work, then you should look around you and see how this works in the ground. The seed has to be destroyed if the new life is going to appear. So Paul says, why in the light of that should we regard as incredible the transformation of a dead body? And come to life is passive, not middle. And so that just simply means the seed doesn't come to life of itself. God gives it life. And then he says, you do not sow the body which is to be. See where we are? You do not sow the body which is to be. So Paul points out that what dies is nothing like what appears. And that's, his, that's one of his first illustrations to, hey, what's the form going to look like? Well, what dies is nothing like what's going to appear. The sprouting of seeds points out more of the obvious, which is that the body that's raised is incomparably more glorious than the body that's buried. Now look at verse 38, if you would. But God gives it a body just as he wished, and each of the seeds a body of its own. So not only is he in the process 
of showing us with the death and, and the resurrection of a seed, there's a whole bunch of different seeds and they all have their own bodies. And so overarching this whole thing, plants and people don't rise because they want to. God gives it a body and they don't do it by accident. They do it because that's God's habitual practice. God gives it. He's actively involved in a continuing reality to give the body to the seed. Present, active, indicative. He's actively involved in it. And then it says, and literally, he, as he determined, it says he gives it a body just as he wished or as he determined according to his own pleasure. Once for all, God planned what should be and all things continue along with the plan, eris, active, indicative. He set the plan up and it follows his plan and all the different seeds do what they're supposed to do and he's actively, physically involved in it as well. Both things are true. God gives it a body just as he previously established that he would and continues to do. So, just to illustrate that, you know, God then has a plan, and he's working his plan, and he's involved in that plan. In verse 39, Paul says this, All flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one flesh of men, and another flesh of beasts, another flesh of birds, another of fish. Verse 40, there are also heavenly bodies, earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is one, and the glory of the earthly is another. Pause right there. Paul brings the illustration of mechanics and form home. So he moves from grain and plants to flesh. God's in charge of the grain. He's in charge of plants. He's in charge of the different kinds of seeds. And they each produce exactly what they're supposed to produce. And they die. And then what raises out of the ground is a whole lot more glorious than what went into the ground. And then he moves to flesh. He says all flesh is not the same kind of flesh. God's involved in all that process. And we saw another transformation principle last time. God has limitless capacity to create. So... He can make fleshly bodies that are fit for heavenly beings, just like he makes fleshly bodies that are fit for earth, just like he makes fish that are fit for water, just like he makes birds fit for the sky, and beasts fit for wherever they are. He knows what flesh they need. He knows how they have to be put together, and he's done just that. So God has that ability. So Paul makes that change from, hey, this shouldn't surprise you. You put grain in the ground, and what grows out is much more glorious than what you put in, but you know what's going to come out because it always comes out that way. And then he says, listen, and God is also in charge of all this flesh. And there's all kinds of different kinds of flesh, and God has made the bodies exactly suited for the environments that they're in. So the fleshly bodies he creates then are all perfect for their applications. And as you think about Paul's words, he's making his illustration clear. There can be a difference then, here it is, between the kind of body we have before the resurrection, because that's the question, isn't it? What is the form? What are the mechanics of the resurrection? And so Paul's making a very careful illustration. There can be a different kind of body we can have before the resurrection than the kind we'll have after it, because God makes all flesh suited to its particular purpose. God isn't stuck with any certain model or flesh, and he can make any, in any limit, limitless capacity, anything he wants to make, and he can make flesh to last for eternity in glory, as we've looked at before, and he can make flesh to last for eternity in punishment, like we looked at before. This is not, God's not limited to any of these things. And catch this, but the glory of the heavenly is one, and the glory of the earthly is another. And it's another important principle to point out that just like a plant that comes from the seed is much more glorious than the seed, so is the heavenly body that comes from the earthly one, much more glorious than the one that went in the ground. The difference between the eternal resurrected physical body, which is fit for heaven, is going to be a lot different than the physical body that was fit for earth. The difference is obviously between the seed and what comes out of the ground. That much different, okay? Now, as we saw, not only is there a significant difference between the glory of the earthly resurrection from seed to plant, and not only is there a tremendous difference between earthly bodies and heavenly bodies, there's a difference between the glory of the different heavenly bodies, and that's what we saw just a moment ago in, in some slides. Look at verse 41. There is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for stars differ from star and glory. Just like there's a wide variety of life on earth, and all that life displays glory in its differences, and is suited for the environments that it's supposed to be put in, heavenly creation is going to be that way, and is that way now. And we saw this very important principle, uh, principle number four, things that God has created in the heavens that we can see vary from one another in the glory that they display. And we just saw that in the slides in just a very brief moment. And Paul's illustration is that resurrected people will be that way as well. 
And this is a very well documented in scripture, and we saw a lot of, of these passages last time. We won't go through them again, but the Bema Seat Judgment, of course, and crowns and, and giving and all these kinds of things and praying. And we recognize the Lord recognizes what you do. He keeps track of the effort that you put in, and you receive uh, recognition for that. And so this is, not, this is not a big stretch for us to understand as we understand what the scriptures say about how you live your life and what you build on that foundation, which is Christ. Lots of differences in glory among the redeemed. Now look at verse 42. And that really brings everything back to its original context. All of Paul's illustrations, beloved, about seeds planted and the diverse kinds of flesh and everything else were given to illustrate the resurrection of the dead, the, the heavenly bodies and all of that, okay, is verse 42. So also, he says, is the resurrection of the dead. Everything he said has pointed to this. This is the illustration he wants to make. This is the mechanics. This is the form of the resurrection. It all points to this. Every illustration, everything he used, all points to this. In other words, here it is. It is in this understanding of differing bodies and differing splendors that the resurrection is to be understood. That's how we can kind of form that up, okay? It's this understanding of the differing bodies and differing splendors that the resurrection is to be understood. The mechanics and the form of the resurrection of the dead are illustrated all around us, and God has limitless capability. And this is the stupidity of someone who comes and says the dead don't rise, or how's he ever going to get all those dead people put back together again, and, and what would they even look like if he even did that? All, all that implies limits, and it reveals a very serious theological problem because Paul says God can do anything he wants and the limits aren't there, see? There are examples all around us of the created order. Seeds vary, plants vary, earthly bodies vary, heavenly bodies vary, sun, moon, stars, all have different glories, and all those illustrations apply to the bodily resurrection of men and women. That's why he's going through the whole thing. And above all the, and above all the examples around us, God, keep this in mind, God is not limited. If he wills it, he can accomplish it. If he wills it, he can accomplish it. Which is, the, I mean, that gives you, I think, the reason why Paul says, you fool. If God wills this, if he said that it is so, he can accomplish it. And we have some very small illustrations all around us that point to this marvelous ability that God has to create any flesh he wants and to create a consistent pattern that he's planned beforehand and is involved in continuously. This is not hard. God's not limited. If he wills it, he can accomplish it. Now, look with me at the next part of verse 42. And this, the Holy Spirit's going to carry Paul along really to make five important distinctions here. And it'll take some time to get through them, so we'll take our time with them. And you can see that Paul is still using terms of sown and raised. So look at, look at, if you would, at the last part of verse 42. 42 says, so also is the resurrection of the dead. And then it says this, it is sown a perishable body. It is raised an imperishable body. Pause right there. Now, he's going to still use the terms sown and raised. He doesn't want them to forget that imagery. That is the perfect imagery Paul understands to display how the mechanics and the form work. And so he still uses those words all throughout these five distinctions. He uses the whole idea of planting and raising, the sowing and the raising. And the verbs are both passive. The sowing and the raising are the Lord's doing. There's a planting that's going to occur for most people. Now, we know some exceptions, don't we? We know Enoch walked with God and he was not, for the Lord took him, right? We know Elijah was taken up in a whirlwind. So we get the idea that some people get taken without dying physically. And we know that the rapture will be that way as well. If we understand 1 Thessalonians 4 correctly, we understand that those who are alive and remain will be caught up together with the Lord. So some won't see that physical death, but most will. And so the sowing is the idea that there is a planting will occur for most people. It's going to come with physical death. And just like Genesis 3 says, from the dust you were created to the dust you will return. So you'll go just back to your original parts, which is just dirt. But that's not a problem for the Lord, is it? He created you the first time. He can certainly create you, recreate you the second time in that physical glorious body. So, and then there's this resurrected body, both things done by the Lord, both passive, that's going to be given to everyone, everyone who's ever died. Righteous, unrighteous, those who believed and in faith and trusted God for salvation and those who rejected it. And although here, in these next five, really, distinctions, Paul really seems to focus on the resurrection of the righteous. So we can understand that the resurrection of the unrighteous are held in Hades until the great white throne judgment. We understand that. We read that in, in Revelation chapter 20. It's not a surprise for us. So Paul's not focusing on them because they're going to get their resurrected body last. That's the second resurrection. Paul's focusing on the first resurrection or the resurrection of the righteous. So he says this. It is sown, look at verse 42, a perishable body and raised imperishable. 
Uh, perishable and imperishable, wonderful nouns, translated corruptible, incorruptible. They have to do with the body's liability uh, of decay, which is the idea of perishable, the idea that there is a decay going on. There's also an understanding, I think, as we think about perishable, fortha, and aphorthia, the idea of um, corruptible, incorruptible. There's an idea of a moral corruption, I think, too, not just the body's corruption. The fallen body is corrupted by sin. So both of those things are in play there. So it's not just the grave he's speaking of. So sown in corruption, obviously the grave magnifies that, correct? It just shows uh, the sowing into the grave and the whole of human life is, uh, is kind of summed up in the grave. It, we corrupt back to our original parts. But that's not the only thing he's speaking of. Uh, the whole of human life manifests corruption, right? Perishing speeds up in the grave, speeds up the, the corruption. But even while we're living, there's this process of corruption. We have the effects of sin on our life, don't we? Uh, perhaps personal cause and effect of sin, sin that you participated in now that you have the effect of that sin on your life, perhaps from previously. And the sure effects, for sure, of age for everyone and the accompanying infirmity and, and illness. And the longer we live, uh, the more we notice it. We decay, we get disease, we become infirm, we get ill. The process goes on and on. Our muscles weaken, our bones weaken, et cetera, et cetera. The longer we live, the more we see that, see? So Paul says, sown, corruptible, raised, incorruptible. So resurrection transformation principle five, and you can look at this if you, uh, and put this down in your notes if that's helpful for you. I should have put that on earlier. Resurrection transformation number five. And if you've missed any of these, you can certainly catch up with them online. Uh, and I'll be glad to give them to you by any format that you'd like. Number five is this. Because, and I think just as a side note, these are so important for us to understand. They are so encouraging to us. They describe for us very clearly our current state. And then regardless of that current state, show what that future state will be. Because of your relationship to Christ and because Christ has been buried and, ra and raised, you will be too. And so Paul goes through all these things over and over again. And these are so encouraging to help you understand your true self and this reality for you. So tr resurrection transformation principle five. Unlike your experience in this life, battling disease, battling sickness, old age, infirmity, the consequences of personal sin, the sin of Adam, all those things that you battle, see, unlike that experience, your resurrected body will have no remnant of any corruption and no process of perishing going on at all. That's Paul's point. Sown perishable, raised imperishable. Sown corruptible, raised incorruptible. There's not any of that process that you are so familiar with right now. None of that's going to be with your resurrected body. There is an incorruptible existence with no decay, no infirmity in the future. That is your reality. So we go into the grave, corrupt. We come out incorruptible. That will be what is going to happen for you. As sure as you are sitting here today, if you know Christ as your Savior, that is your reality. And that's a wonderful thing to grab hold of. The body is never going to decay. It'll never get old. It'll have absolutely no time limitations, no capacity to deteriorate. We will be permanently incorruptible, no decline. Let that sink in for a minute, okay? Because the older we are, the more we recognize that's the truth. But there is going to be a process that's going to be stopped when you hit the grave or when you are raptured, and you will have a body that is permanently incorruptible with no decline. That's marvelous. Let's look at the next one, verse 43. It is sown in dishonor, atomia, that's shame or disgrace. It's raised in glory. That's the word doxa. That's the condition of splendor or brightness or, or blessedness. So raised in dishonor or shame and disgrace, sown in dishonor rather, in shame and disgrace, raised in glory. And this really seems to have to do with potential. And I'll explain that in just a minute. Potential. So uh, we, when we were created, it was in God's image. Uh, you remember Genesis 1.27. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Pretty clear. God created male and female in his image. So stamped, if you will, if you will with the undistorted glory, the perfect reflection an image of God himself, that was creation, man and woman. God gave to man a glory beyond anything else that he had made. He picked man and woman to be head of all of the earth. Earth was created, if you will, for men and women, okay? And everything else serves them. Everything is there for them. And they were stamped, if you will, in this undistorted glory, this perfect reflection, this image of God himself. That was the original, okay? 
God gave man a manifestation of himself beyond any other thing that he made. Now, everything bears that fingerprint of God. Everything bears the creation mark. We understand his glory by the things that have been made. We can look out the window. We can go to the beach. We can go to the mountains. We can see God's glory. But man was the image of God. It was the, that creation that manifested the glory of God most perfectly. But when man rebelled, there was, among other things, shame and disgrace. Adam dishonored and he damaged and he stained that image when he fell. And so the majority of the life of men since the fall of Adam and the majority of the life of a man, you just put yourself right in there, since the fall of Adam is dishonor to the image of God. The majority of our life, just be honest. Our capacities are limited. Our minds are limited. We, atomia, we dishonor the potential we have with the creation. I mean, not, we don't use it to its full potential and we we wreck it and don't try to fix it. I mean, we just, we are constantly in this series of shame and dishonor, see? We fail consistently. I believe that's Paul's point here. And it isn't to prompt, listen, it isn't to prompt God's people to walk around in depression. Why is that? Because God has placed the shame and disgrace and burden of sin on Christ. All of that shame and disgrace has been placed on Christ. And at salvation, that burden was lifted from you, see? And the inner man was redeemed. And the real you became its full potential, did it not? You were raised with Christ in the new man. That's the real you. Here's the problem. The flesh hasn't been renewed, has it? And that's Paul's point. Someday, that glory potential is going to be restored. So here's resurrection transformation principle six, okay? Unlike your experience of never missing a chance to overpromise and underdeliver. That's us, isn't it? Exactly. We, we promise some things to God and we promise things to ourselves and we overpromise it constantly and underdeliver it, under it constantly, don't we? I mean, just be honest. I mean, you, you've made promises to the Lord in the past. You've said you're not going to do some things and we, we make all these great promises and we underdeliver constantly. We are constantly in that shame and, and, and that cycle of disgrace with how our bodies act. It has appetite and we feed it. We don't have to, but we do. So, that's our, that's our experience, over-promising and under-delivering. Under-delivering. Your resurrected body will be capable of the glory, listen, that God intended for you from the start. No more dishonor. Your resurrected body, that's your reality, see? Isn't that marvelous? At, at that point in your resurrected body, you were never going to under-deliver again. The things that you determine to do according to the will of God, because that will be your main purpose in life are the things you'll be able to do. You'll be returned to that glory that God intended to begin with in that new physical body. Now look at the next part, verse 43. It's sown in weakness, it's raised in power. And beloved, nowhere is the weakness of this age more apparent than the feebleness, feebleness and powerlessness of death as evidence at funerals, right? I mean, pursue whatever path you want to pursue. And make whatever plans you want to make, but you have no guarantee of the next breath, let alone tomorrow. And that's powerlessness manifested perfectly, isn't it? You can make whatever plans you want. You can build yourself up physically. You can do, you know, all those things you want. Pursue whatever path you want. Cultivate your physical strength. Cultivate your mental ability. And even in doing that, there will be limitations to both of those things you won't be able to overcome. There is a weakness that's inherent in humanity. We can't fulfill our dreams. We can't fulfill our desires. And many times those things are contrary to the pursuits Scripture sets before us anyway. We set all these dreams and desires out there. and We want to pursue them and we don't get there. And many times they're not even in line with what Scripture wants. So we go back to the previous one, right? Sown in dishonor. We can be the recipient of a heartache. We're at the mercy of other people. They can hurt us. They can injure us. We can be manipulated by other people. We can be negatively impacted by our environment, by what we eat. We don't like to think about that too much. We like to believe that we're all in control. See, and the younger you are, the more you think you are. But that isn't true. And ultimately, the grave reveals the truth about the body. See, And I've done lots of funerals with people who are in their 20s and people who are in their teens and younger. So we don't have any guarantee. And there is this manifestation of this weakness. It's no more apparent than it is in the coffin at a funeral. And that weakness is the Greek noun asthenia. It's translated infirmity. So sown in infirmity. And it just has to do with everything we just mentioned. See, th that negatively impacts us. And then the noun power, we're going to be raised in power. 
That's the word dunamis. That's where we get our word dynamite. That's how we're going to be raised. And that's that contrast, see? And catch this, see? This word is also used to refer to the miracles Jesus did. So Mark 6, 5, and he could do no dunamis there except, no miracle there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and he healed them. So that word miracle is the Greek noun dunamis. And that word's fallen also in, in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, if you remember when we went through this. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power, there's the same word of God, for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So the gospel, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. That's the gospel, right? That's what we saw, First Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3. So the gospel, then, has an intrinsic quality, or what? Power to save. It has power. The gospel itself has power. And that's what Romans chapter 1, verse 16 says. And Jesus did power in his miracles. And so that's also very clear as well. But I don't think those are the meanings that Paul has intended here. He says we are sown in weakness and raised in power. He's making a contrast, just as he's been all along. I don't think that's the meaning. The definition is strength or force. That's the definition of dunamis. It's strength or force. And, it, and it, as it has with the other contrasts, uh, that Paul's pointed out, I think that's our meaning here. And so Resurrection Transformation Principle 7 is this. Unlike your experience of extreme limitation and being victimized and everything being outside your control in the resurrection, you'll have the complete power God designed for the human to possess. And I'll just tell you that what that means is not entirely clear. And I don't think anybody really knows what that means. But I think there are places where we can get some hints, and that's what I'm going to show you now. There's no historical equivalent to having the power that a human being was designed to possess because Adam wasn't in the garden very long and we don't have much commentary on what he did in the garden until there was a big mess up. So Hebrews chapter 2, verse 6 gives us a little bit of illustration of perhaps what that's going to be like. And I'll put it on the screen for you. But as one has testified somewhere saying, what is man that you remember him? So what is the topic? You and me, Right? All of us in this room, everyone who's ever lived, what is man that, that you remember him or the son of man that you're concerned about him? Because of all the things we just got through saying, he's, he's powerless, he's weak, he's, he's shame is in life. I mean, all those things because of the fall are a problem. So what is it that makes you interested? And then it says, the commentary says this, verse 7, you've made him for a little while lower than the angels. How long is he lower than the angels? I mean, obviously, just for a little while, right? I mean, I don't know how long that is. Obviously, it's a time period during the time we currently live, right? But it's for a little while. So it's a time period, unknown exactly, but I think we have an idea of when that time period ends. You have crowned him with glory and honor and, ha and have appointed him over the works of your hands. So you've put him in a very important position. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. Okay, well, that doesn't seem to describe us too much. Well, then look at the next, look at the next sentence. I mean, everything's not in subjection under your feet, is it? I mean, you can't even get, keep weeds out of your garden, right? I mean, I can't anyway. And I mean, I could get a flat tire on the way home. That's not under subjection, right? Your dog might bite your hand when you, you feed him the next time. He's not even under subjection. Your kids are going to disobey you when you, when, you, uh, when you tell them to do something. So listen, that's not of our experience. So here's what, here's what the commentator says. For in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. Mark this. So at some point in time, everything will be subject to him. But mark this. But now we do not yet see all things subjected to him. So I think that gives us a few hints. Here they are. Whatever the angels can do in power, authority, and strength, men are temporarily made lower than they are. It's a temporary situation. According to Hebrews chapter 2, and everything is to be subject to us, but right now not everything is. But someday it will be. Temporarily, there are some things that are not in subjection. So what's that mean? Well, it's not super clear, but I think you have a better understanding, other than Paul's message in 1 Corinthians 15, 43, is meant to communicate a significant change from our present reality. Whatever the power is supposed to be, we don't know exactly. We've got a hint here in Hebrews that temporarily we're lower than the angels. And I seem to remember there, there's a whole lot of stuff that angels did in the Old Testament that seemed pretty impressive. And resurrection will change us from powerless to powerful, and in the full measure of moving into your designated spot as higher than the angels, whatever that means, and all things subjected to you, whatever that will mean in the eternal state. But it will, it's significant because the book of Hebrews 
clearly said that that's what's going to be, and Paul made it clear that that's a pretty, insig a pretty significant point of contrast. We're powerless now and powerful then. And we see the angels doing some very powerful things in the scriptures, and you are temporarily lower than them, but only temporarily. And so just what it means is that the full power that God ever designated for a human being to possess in the ultimate of transformation, you're going to have. And that's probably beyond what we can imagine, I would think. Because we only have a few examples of, I mean, uh, more than a few, but a few examples of what angels have done, and they, that's very impressive. What will be required when we have that resurrected body? I don't know. But we do know that's temporarily under their, underneath them, but not forever. And all things are in subjection. But right now, not all things are, but someday they will be. So no more limitations that we're used to, if you will. No more victimization and weakness subject to the powers of the environment, other powers beyond our control, which we mentioned before. You'll no longer have that because you'll be in power. No more of the former stuff. And then Paul just sums up the Lord's limitless ability to create any flesh he wants to create, any way he wants to create it. He says this in verse 44. It's sown a natural body and it's raised a spiritual body. That natural body is sokikon, the word sokikon. It's where we get our word physical, also the word psyche. Both of those words come from that word, so keep on. And it just means according to nature. The natural order of things that God set up. We get the sense of the word from Romans chapter 1, verse 26. You remember this, and when I read it, you'll know it. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions for their women exchanged. Then here it is. So keep on the natural function for that which is unnatural. So the Lord points out what is according to nature. That's the whole point of the word there in intimacy has been distorted into what is opposite of the intended function. So there you go. I mean, I think that's the perfect example of this idea of a natural body. What's natural? What comes as a direct result of the natural order that God has set up. So when Paul says it's sown a natural body, he just means that the body that is put in the ground, mark this, was a body that was suited for this world. Okay? And we've seen that now. This is a repeat, so this is not, not new stuff for us. The body that was put in this ground is a body that was suited for the world. Just like the fish body is suited for the water, just like the bird's body is suited for the air, just like the beasts of the, of the, of the uh, ground are suited for the places where they are, this body God gave us, this natural body, was suited for this natural environment, the environment God has set up, the natural order of things that we've been following all along. So in a natural body. But we're going to get a body that's perfectly suited for the next world raised a spiritual body. So, resurrection transformation principle eight. Just as sure as you know that the physical body that God gave you fits the earth that you live on, in the resurrection, your new body will fit a new kind of life and a new kind of dimension and a new kind of existence and a new kind of experience that we currently don't have, but is set aside in heaven for us, reserved for all eternity. So just kind of summing it up, it says it's a natural body, it's, it's going to be raised a spiritual body. It doesn't mean it's going to be raised a spirit. It just means it's going to be raised in the body that's fit for eternity. Okay? Again, just in the very natural sense of the words. Because we've already seen physical bodies are raised. We've already seen the, the demonstration of a seed and raised a physical plant life. We've already seen all the physical bodies of, of the earth. We've seen the heavenly bodies of their physical bodies up there. So there's no sense to be thinking that somehow we're just kind of floating around somewhere raised. That's not the, that's not the essence. Because otherwise... First Thessalonians 4 is going to have, you have a difficult time with the body coming out of the grave and joining with those who are dead already and your body being transformed. So once again, it's sown a body that was fit for the earth, raised a body that's going to be fit for the eternal kingdom. Okay? Just right now you're in your natural body, just like before salvation. Your spirit was natural too, right? You were in perfect agreement. You were your, your physical, unredeemed body, which you still have, was in perfect agreement with the unredeemed old man connected to Adam. And you got along perfectly. And after redemption, you have the new man now and still clothed in the old flesh. And now you have conflict. But someday that's not going to be the case. That body's going to be laid to rest. It was fit for this earth. And you're going to get a new physical body. It's going to be in perfect harmony with the new you. Remember 1 Corinthians 2.14. The natural man, here it is, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for they are foolishness to him. He cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised before salvation. See, 
you were not able to spiritually appraise anything. You were dead in your transgressions and sin, right? If you say the same thing about yourself that Scripture says, then before you were redeemed, you were dead in your transgressions and sin. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 says, and you were dead in your transgressions and sin. So we remove any question about that, okay? In which you formerly walked according to the course of this world. So you proved it by what you did. You were dead and you walked just that way. According to the prince of the power of the air, that's Satan himself, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience, that's still around in the world today, and you can look and see the evidence of it. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lust of our, indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind. So where did the desires of the, of the dead you, the Adam you, live out its debauchery? In this. See? And we're by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you've been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ. So, the new you has a pretty exalted position. And now it's not in harmony anymore with what you did in the flesh before, but you still have the flesh, see? So your new reality is that the real you has been raised up and seated with Christ in heavenly places. The old man died with Christ, like we saw last week in Romans 6, and the new you was raised with Christ. So your spirit was suited to a corrupted world, but now you're not at home in here anymore. Your body's suited to this world, but you're going to leave this physical body behind, and you'll be raised with a body suited for heaven in perfect harmony with the new you. And so when Paul says that, it was planted, your physical body is raised a spiritual body, that's just your new body will be fit for all that God has in store for those who love him for all eternity. And it can be understood as a body that is attuned to the spirit. Is this body attuned to the spirit? Not as often as we perhaps like it to be, right? And we've talked about that many times. A body that is in perfect harmony with the spirit is what we want. And those first reactions with this body and with this mind are what we'd like to see conformed. And that is a slow process of sanctification. But someday, that old body will be done away with and the new body will perfectly go with the new man. Luke chapter 20, verse 34 says this. Jesus is answering the Sadducees about brothers who had the same wife. We talked about this before. This is a verse towards the end of that passage. Verse 34 says, Jesus said to them, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. Verse 35, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and the resurrection from the dead, and of course that's the first resurrection, nobody's attaining to the second resurrection, okay? So obviously the motivation is for that resurrection of the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage. Verse 36, for they cannot even die anymore because they are like angels and are sons of God being sons of the resurrection. That's, that's one of your names, did you know that? You're, you're a son of the resurrection, a daughter of, a resur of the resurrection. It's a marvelous name we can find in Christ that, that describes us. So, verse 37, but that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the burning bush, where he calls the Lord, of, the, Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now, he is not the God of the dead, but of the living for all live to him. As well adapted as we are to this life, see, so will we adapted to that life in perfection. Right now, we're natural. That's because we belong to this life and we, and, 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 that is a body that belongs to this life, and, and it's in this present cycle of life, the normal cycle of human life, and marriage and children all take place in this age. And so Scripture says, listen, it, this is how it is in this age. That's what he said in Luke. But that's not how it is in the next age. And with that body, that's not going to be the style of life that you're going to have. There's not going to be a normal cycle of human life and marriage, and you're not going to die anymore. And that satisfaction that comes in that in that relationship with your wife or with your husband and all the things that occur there, that is not going to be the reality of the next life. In the resurrection, those processes are left behind. And if you want to know what kind of, uh, kind of like how we're going to be, just look how the angels go and come and all the things that they do because you were made a little lower than them temporarily, but someday you're going to be above them. And according to Hebrews 2, it appears that we won't be in that lower position anymore. And that's really exciting to think about, see? And this life seems to fly by and you can really relate to James, can't you? Because you think about, I mean, if you, you attain to the, to the first resurrection, you're part of the sons of the resurrection, the daughters of the resurrection, you know this life is flying by, but that doesn't seem too bad if you recognize what happens afterwards, see? 
It's when we don't grasp those facts and we think somehow this life is all there is or we're wrapped up so tightly in the world that we're not looking forward to all those things that are so clear. No more powerlessness, no more infirmity. All those things are just part of your life now. We kind of we try to deaden ourselves to them by surrounding ourselves with material things and whatever it is. But the fact remains that all these things that Paul described of the human body are indeed the case. And so James says, you're just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. That's rough to hear, isn't it? If you're wrapped up in this life very tightly. But you know, because of Christ's resurrection, you don't really need to worry about that, do you? Because this is what we have to look forward to. And so God has this wonderful new thing planned for you. And I just, wanna, I just want you to remember this, okay? Because everybody's a different different uh, times of life. Some are unmarried, looking forward to marriage. Some are already married and loving their marriages. Some have been married a long time and have enjoyed all of that and whatever it is. But just in case you're wondering about maybe this physical life is just a little bit better than perhaps what we have a glimpse of, remember this. The God who designed this physical life in many respects for our enjoyment because he loves us and our enrichment because he's good like that is the one who's designed the next one with the body to match. So think about the good things about the physical life that we have. Remember who created all of that. And even in its corrupted state, with the effects of sin that in the battle us constantly and the powerlessness and the infirmity and all those things and the shame that we can never, we always over-promise and under-deliver and all that kind of stuff. See, even with all of that, this life's pretty sweet. But remember, in case you're thinking that, you know, the whole marriage arrangement and all the stuff that's connected there, listen, in case you're thinking this may be better than the next, remember, the one who created this one created that one and a body to match it. So I don't think you have a lot of stuff to worry about, right? And Paul has made this great argument, and he's given several examples and illustrations, and he's really silenced the mockers. I mean, it's, it's going to be pretty tough to come back from all of that. I mean, you maybe walk away mumbling under your breath, but I don't think you're going to come to Paul and say, oh, so what's it going to look like, Paul? And you maybe hear them thinking, maybe some of them are thinking this, are you sure about all this, Paul? I mean, I'm living my life, you know, I'm doing my thing, and, and I'm eating, and I'm drinking because tomorrow we die, and that's it. And that's what I'm doing, see? And I'm okay with that. I know about the here and now, and then Paul says this, this is, this is really incredible. I've made my case to you, he says, and know this for certain. If there is a natural body, what? Just as sure as you are about you live and you eat and drink and tomorrow you die, just as sure as you are about satisfying this natural body and all that you've experienced and everything that you like about it and all this life is your thing and you're all wrapped up with it, you better be sure about this one thing, Paul says. If there's a natural body, and I think everybody who was standing talking to Paul would just look down and say, yeah, there's one. There's also a spiritual body. It's just that certain and just that very pointed. Paul doesn't have to say a whole lot right there, does he? I've, I've given you all the facts. I've shown the illustrations that really show you what resurrected mechanics and form are going to look like. I've told you how important it is that Christ was resurrected to the future and to your living a life of fulfillment and satisfaction and, and deliverance from sin. I've shown you what it means for the future for bringing all things in subjection. I've told you what it means for the whole kingdom being handed over to the Lord. I've shown you all of that. If, you, if you're Christ, you come along right after him because he's the first fruits. I've shown you all that. I've shown you what it looks like by the seed being planted, by the all different kinds of flesh and all different kinds of, of things in the in, uh, in uh, the heavenly realms that you can look at and see the differences in glory. And I've shown you all that. And listen, if you're still determined that this is it, eat, drink tomorrow, and you'll die, let me tell you this. As, su as sure as there is a natural body, there is a spiritual body. Transformation principle number nine. As certain as you are of this life here, that is the same certainty you should bring to the understanding of the next. There's another one coming. There's another, there's another physical body that you're going to have. And the decisions you make here about this will determine where that physical body spends eternity. You could spend eternity with the God who loves you and created this world for you and the next one and the life to match it. Or you can spend eternity with a physical body created to for eternal punishment. And those are the only two choices. And everybody will fall into one of those two categories. 
with no exceptions. It won't matter what you believed in this life. It won't matter if you didn't think God existed. It won't matter what, if you thought you were good enough or it was just this life. Listen, scripture says that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Everybody. Whether you want to or not, whether you think it's right or not, will be irrelevant. At that point, you will do it. Face Christ now as your Savior, the one who gave his life for you, and then later, your Redeemer, who will catch you away and keep you with him forever, or face him later as your judge, where all the things you've ever said and done will all be out in the books and all out in the open compared to Christ's sacrifice for you. And you'll find yourself cast away, paying for your own sins. You'll get what you want, but not everybody likes what they get. Let's bow and be dismissed in prayer. Lord, we thank you for, for this opportunity today to be in your word. We're so grateful for its clarity. We thank you for Paul and the, the, the wonderful illustrations your Holy Spirit carried him along to give us. Thank you for, the, the, really, it leads us to a very pointed invitation to avoid the death that leads to destruction. For its own self, for self-preservation, that certainly seems to be uh, the thing to choose, uh, certainly though um, Scripture would indicate that saying the same thing about ourself, that it says that we're sinful and separate from God and we do acts of sin every day to just prove that we're uh, sinful. And that God, in his rich mercy, because he loved us, sent us Christ. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. God loved you and gave his Son on your behalf. Can you respond in, in obedience to him? Respond to that love? Because you will respond to his justice. You won't have an opportunity to reject it. You will be sub uh, submitted to it. Uh, there will be a judgment time for you, and all your deeds will be very clear. And then you will be cast away with a body to made to last forever when you could have been at home with the Lord forever. In the creation he designed for you before the foundation of the world that he prepares now, John 6 says, John 14, 6 says, following. And Jesus in John 10, 10, I've come that they might have life and have it abundantly. Not just the future, but now you, you come to Christ and you really begin the purpose for which you were made. Confess him now. Confess Jesus as Lord. Believe in your heart. God raised him from the dead. You'll be saved. It's not really the combination of words. It's confessing that you are a sinner, that you've you have sinned, you prove that you're a sinner each day, that what scripture says about you is true, and that Jesus came and died on the cross for you, and that he rose. If you believe that, scripture says you can be saved. Confess that right now, where you sit. Now is the accepted time for salvation, Paul said in Acts 18. We make our case to you, Paul says, as ambassadors be reconciled to God through Christ. If you prayed that prayer today, before you leave, will you respond? There's a card in the chair right in front of you. It says, welcome guests on the back. It gives you a chance to respond that you prayed and received Christ as your Savior. And turn that into me before you go. Come talk to me. I'd love to talk to you about what you did. Be my joy. It's one of the reasons why we do what we do. And I can put you in your hands ways to help you grow. I pair you off with someone who's a mature believer who can help you and and disciple you and can follow in baptism. Father, just have your will and your way here. We always want that. We don't want to do what we want. We want you to work through your word in clarity. We want there to be fruit. I pray that you'll help to uh, remove from the minds of folks here anything that I have said that's distracted from your word or in some way uh, gave it a misfocus. Just want your word to be exalted, for you to be glorified, for Jesus to be put in his rightful place, for people to come to faith and then respond in obedience in all the things that you've given us. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. And all God's people said, amen.